You know, when we sang that last song, Lord, I Need You, I wonder what specific needs were coming into your heart and mind. What do you need from the Lord right now? How would you describe it? All of us are carrying needs of one kind or the other. Some of you might even say it's a huge need. Uh, it's a need I, I, I feel desperate over at this moment. Maybe it's a need of a physical nature. I know that in our church family there are some pretty significant physical needs right now that we've been praying over and trusting that the Lord will bring healing. Some need miraculous healing. And we've been asking God for that. Some of you have financial needs. Maybe it was something that was unexpected, just came out of the blue, and, and, and you're left with a bill, and you're saying, Lord, I, I need you. I, I don't know how this is going to be taken care of. Or maybe it's the cumulative effect just of, of one difficulty after another. Not, none of them so big in and of themselves that you would say that was a catastrophic moment, but now the accumulation of those financial pressures have reached a point where it feels catastrophic. You say, Lord, I need you. Maybe there's a relational need something that has, has left you just without answers. You don't even know what words to offer the Lord this morning to say to Him, here's my prayer and here are the particulars that, that I can identify as being my need. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. But I love the next lines in that hymn of faith as we are, are learning it my one defense, what is that one defense? The righteousness of Jesus. Even the difficult suffering that we experience at this particular moment is temporary, and God in His kindness has confined all suffering to this lifetime. Now, if you don't know Jesus personally, if you're not in right relationship with Him, you actually stand the prospect that you would not only suffer through this life, but there would be suffering in the life to come. And that's, that's a terrifying prospect. But in the gospel, and by gospel we simply mean the, the, the story of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, how He lived, how He died for us, how He rose again miraculously, how He's ascended to heaven, seated on the right hand of the Father, place of honor and exaltation. There's no one like Jesus, and as the story of Jesus is unfolded for us in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's not just a New Testament thing, but Old Testament as well, one of the things that God continually brings us back to is that all of us need Jesus. We need who He is and we need what He is. We need who He is in relationship with Him and we need all that He offers to us. Now, we're at a place at the, at the very end, uh, and by very end, this is not the, the last message. I had to divide it up into two, but, but we're coming to the end of a study that if you've been with us for a while you know we call it the one another series. And in the New Testament, there are a number of passages that use the phrase one another. And it all began in John 13 and then John 15 where Jesus in speaking to his disciples said, my command is this, love one another as I have loved you. And then he went on to say, by your love one for another, everyone will know that you're really my disciples. 
And so we've been tracing that little phrase, one another. The, the big overarching command is to love one another. And then it's interesting how the New Testament writers, apostles like Paul, and today we're going to look at the book of James, if you want to go ahead and find that. Uh, we're going to read what these apostles and followers of Jesus Christ wrote specifically about loving one another. And it, and it appears in phrases uh, like forgive one another. And that was something we looked at from the book of Ephesians several weeks ago. And then that led us onto a couple little sidebar messages uh, on marriage, husbands and wives and, and our love one for another in those contexts. Uh, you might find other passages that say bear patiently with one another. Uh, because we're all imperfect, and we, we do dumb stuff, and we do sinful stuff. And whether it's dumb stuff or sinful stuff, it calls for patience. And so we bear patiently with one another. We don't expect perfection. So those would be some examples of some of those one another commands. But in James 5, and if you're using one of the Bibles from the rack under the chair in front of you, you'll find this particular book of the Bible on page 1013. 1013. And again, let me just say, we'd love for everybody to have a copy of the Bible, and if you do not own a copy of the, the Bible, you are welcome to take that copy with you after the service. So those, those Bibles that are uh, in those racks underneath the chairs are not only for you using the service, but take it with you and continue to read it in the days and weeks to come. All right, so this is a letter that James uh, wrote to the early church probably one of the earliest letters that was written in the first century after Jesus rose again and then ascended on high. And I want to begin reading in verse 13. James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a, name, with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We'll end our reading there. It may seem like an unusual paragraph, and I'll admit that, all kinds of things that James weaves into that, but a couple of key thoughts for you, and you probably picked up on this, that there are two one another's in this. The first is pray for one another. And the second, which we'll save for next Sunday, Lord willing, is found in verse 16, confess your sins to one another. And that's going to be a really helpful and, and I hope encouraging study in and of its own. But notice verse 13 again. Let's go back and just work our way through verses 13, 14, and 15. I think that's probably all we'll have time to look at this morning. And Paul is talking about particular occasions for prayer or praise. And the occasion for prayer that he first mentions is suffering. That's not something that we all go looking for, is it? I mean, nobody wakes up on a Monday morning and says, hey, you know what? I think I need a good dose of suffering today. Where could I find that? As a matter of fact, most of us kind of wake up, at least in the back of our minds, thinking, I'd like to avoid suffering in whatever form it may come. 
suffering can refer to any kind of distress. It may be of a physical nature. It may be of some kind of, of, of spiritual or emotional hardship. And James has just walked through several examples of suffering. And if you had time to go back and read the verses that precede this, you would see some of that. Now, two things that he mentions in particular, and since these are only just a couple of verses prior to what we're looking at, look at verses 10 and 11. He first of all speaks of the suffering of Old Testament prophets, prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah, prophets like Jonah, uh, even Elijah is mentioned here. And these were people who were called by God to proclaim his message. And so they'd enter into a community or a particular gathering of people and they would say, thus saith the Lord. And you know what's really hard if you go back and read through the Old Testament accounts of their lives and their ministries? The vast majority of them were rejected. Oh, there were some people who listened and paid attention, submitted their hearts to the message of the Lord, but many of them suffered in really terrible ways. Some were imprisoned. Some were starved. Some were outcast. Some had to run for their lives. All kinds of forms of suffering. And James puts them forward in verse 10 as an example. These who spoke the word of, of God experienced rejection and mistreatment, some even to the point of death, but they endured patiently. The only way they could endure patiently is because they knew that what they were experiencing in that moment wasn't the end of it. A second example that James offers to us is found in verse 11. And he doesn't tell the story, but he mentions Job. Now, Job is one of the Old Testament saints, probably lived uh, even long before many of these prophets walked the, the face of the earth. And you remember the story of Job. If you've never read it, you should at some point. But he actually lost all of his children, lost all of his earthly goods, and then finally even lost his health. I mean, it is a wreck of a life. And it turns out that the reason all of those things happened to him is that God actually called Satan into his presence and said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan basically said, well, sure, he praises you and serves you because you've blessed him so richly. And God gave Satan permission to afflict Satan, take away all of his children, all of his material possessions, and he was a very wealthy man, and then afflict him with a terrible, terrible physical illness. And yet Job never opened his mouth to condemn or curse the Lord, but remained faithful and righteous. And it turns out that it really was more of a conversation between the Lord and the devil than it was about Job's life. Quite a remarkable moment of suffering. And James writes, look at verse 11 with me. He mentions to these dear people who themselves are suffering, and he's trying to encourage, and he says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. That is, you've seen it lived out in the life of the prophets. You've seen it lived out in the life of Job. And then notice this little phrase, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And I say this by way of introduction, that very often our suffering becomes a backdrop on which the Lord hangs His compassion and hangs His mercy, features His compassion and mercy, if you will. Now, that may be difficult for us in some respects, uh, especially when you're going through something so hard, because part of you is like, you know what? God, do you really have to display compassion and mercy on the backdrop of my suffering? Could you do it on somebody else's life? But you know, if truth be told, there's nothing sweeter than experiencing the compassion and mercy of God deeply and personally and richly in the midst of your suffering. And that's the perspective that 
James wants to give us. Now, notice again in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it makes sense. And if you grew up religious, you're familiar with the terminology of prayer and maybe even the practice of it. All kinds of religions around the world today are praying. But James is actually going to tell us some things about uh, how we pray and, and even how we would go about praying that I think make us very hopeful in the midst of our suffering. You see, rather than giving up, rather than giving in, rather than grumbling and complaining or just looking for someone who might sympathize with you, he is actually saying you need to take that suffering and let it become that motivation for speaking to God. That's at the heart of prayer. And so whether it be praying for relief or praying for strength or praying for healing, all kinds of things that are in view here, Paul or James says, if you're suffering, I'm calling you to, to pray. Turn back to James 1 for a moment. I think this is really important for us, again, just to kind of get the full context. Because this is a letter. It's one letter. And we're jumping in kind of at the very end of the letter. But if we had the benefit to read it from its very beginning, in chapter 1, verse 2, you would read, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing now again i got to tell you we all read that and 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 something in us says i don't really want to be tested in this way is there another way to grow our faith is there another way to grow steadfastness and endurance and the things that go along with that and apparently not apparently god in his perfect wisdom says this is the best way you know, it's interesting to me that we, many of us, pay really good money to have gym memberships, don't we? Any of you, I won't ask for a show of hands here, but I'm sure all of you have done it at least once in your life. Or maybe, you know, come, come January, you know, those infomercials appear, you know, and if you pay three easy payments of $19.95, you can get this set of DVDs, which will transform you from what you see in the mirror, you know, to like super person. And a lot of us have succumbed to that salesmanship, haven't we? And you know what's interesting? That whether it be 30 days or 90 days or whatever the duration, very few people who buy those things and even go through it actually look like that, whatever that is. And it furthermore seems odd to me, like I, we, we joined uh, one of the local um, gyms, and I just, you know, part of it, I do, I do think it's good for us, good stewardship of the body and all that. But you know, not only do, would you pay that membership, you can actually pay a trainer in that gym to inflict more pain on you. <laughs> I'm thinking, man, somebody who figured this thing out who's getting rich off of this is genius. But why would you, why would you pay somebody to torture you? Because that's how it feels for a lot of us, isn't it? Well, we actually know that that pressure that we put on our cardio system or our muscles in the end is good for us, but in the moment, it's really painful, isn't it? And some of you have actually done the hard work, whether in the context of a sports team or training for, for something personal, whether it be running a marathon or a triathlon, or, or you, just, you just wanted to get healthy again, and, and you go and, and you discipline yourself and actually put yourself under pressure, which results in pain. But you say that pain is what actually grows my overall health. 
I think there's something similar that we need to recognize happens spiritually. And God is more interested in growing you in your spiritual health than just making life easy and comfortable. He's actually trying to conform you to the image of His Son. Jesus Himself, who was perfect, had no sin in Him whatsoever. He actually suffered through His life. Hebrews talks about things that he learned as a result of that, which, which blows my mind because I think he's already God, or he's God. He already knows everything, but he lives as a human being and learns what it is to suffer and learns what it is to entrust his soul to his God and our God, to his Father and our Father. There's something that God in His wisdom has ordained that results in our spiritual growth even through suffering. Notice verse 12. You're still in James 1. Let's just skip over a few verses. And now James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So it's not only growing your faith and your steadfastness right now, there's actually a reward coming at the end. I don't know what the crown of life looks like, I mean, I can try to imagine it. You can try to imagine it. But I'm telling you right now, it's going to be a grand day when you, as a child of God, stand before the God who created you, who saved you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who called you into his presence by his grace and says, you endured suffering so well. Well done, good and faithful servant, and then presents you with a crown of life. James says God has promised this to those who love him. So when you're suffering, you pray. You speak to God. Notice the second, go back to James 5, and and notice the, the second point in this context of when we would pray. And I'm I'm skipping over, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. He uses a pretty generic standard word for sickness. There's no special kind of sickness that's in view. It does seem because of the context that it's a serious illness, an illness that requires more than just, you know, a little emergency as we would use in our day and age. You know, you power down an extra vitamin C, maybe you take a little nasal decongestant and you know that, you know, with a little more rest and just give it a couple days, you'll be on it. No, there's something going on here where this person says there's sickness that may not be healed uh, unless I pray. And furthermore, it seems it's, it's of a nature that, that soliciting the prayers of God's under shepherds in a local assembly like this is key. In the Gospels, this is the term that you see used for all kinds of physical infirmity or illness, many of which Jesus himself healed. So as James writes to us, if you're sick, you can call for the elders of the church. Let's walk through that a little bit and say, so what what does this practice look like? Well, it, it first of all, is a practice that includes others. And I think, again, we're thinking in the context of building this community of love and faith that God's called us into. How do we function? And, you know, there's, there's still something in the American mindset, and I think it's a little more deeply embedded here in the West, right? Because some of you are multi, multi-generational Westerners, and maybe even your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents pioneered 
out here, and you know, they carved out this living, and you kind of have that independent spirit. And that often creeps into the church as well. And especially in occasions like this where people say, you know, I'm sick, but you know, I'm praying to God and trusting him, and it's okay. No, I don't need anything. And, and it's not that people are trying to be rude, but there's just kind of this independence that, that resides in our souls. And there's something that's clearly implied here, and that is when the people of God reach those places where they're hurting, where they're in a bad spot, it's not just an option for them to reach out. They should reach out. Had a little situation that unfolded even in my family this week, and, and I have three sisters, and suddenly there's a text message going around saying, did anybody realize that dad is having this little medical procedure done? And we all realized, no, he hadn't said anything. And I... I want to be real careful. I don't want to cast my dad as if he's an unspiritual man. He's a very spiritual man. I think in the end, he just thought, it's not that big of a deal. I don't need to get him, but he's stirred up. But man, my sisters were stirred up. And now my dad's got other trouble because he's got three daughters who are like, you should have told us. Maybe. It's certainly, I'm glad it's not, you know, of a nature like this. But I, I just want to put this out there. God never intended you to bear your burdens alone. It's always good and right to recruit people to pray for you. This particular case, the, the illness is of such a nature that James is saying, I, I want you to practice this kind of praying and include others in it. So call for the elders. The elders, that's simply a term for pastors. Uh, right now, Gospel Hope has four pastors. In time, we've just completed some uh, initial study with the men. We hope God will add more elders uh, to this ministry more under-shepherds, men who can, who can serve the body, who can care for it in the same way that Jesus does as our great shepherd. And such a request, calling for the elders, is an expression of humble dependence upon God. It's the recognition that I can't do this on my own. And that's where even gospel community, a church community like ours, is very different from, from the way many of us grew up thinking, that we will do it on our, on our own, can do it by ourselves. And then notice the second step in this practice. It's really simple and straightforward. Let them pray over him. Now, it'd be easy to miss the simplicity of God's design uh, because of what's not stated here. But I think part of the reason James is saying this is he lived in a day and age, and we live in uh, a, a similar day and age where people have their little gimmicks and talismans and, and, and little magic potions. We may not call it magic, but dare I go this route? Essential oils? Don't beat me. But that's not your first hope, is it? And it's never the object of your faith. Let them pray. Call for the elders and just let them pray. They don't perform special incantations. They don't bring in, you know, the box load of, uh, of spiritual talismans or, or potions. The command is directed specifically to the elders in the church, but it's, it's really simple and straightforward. Just let them pray. Let them pray for your healing. Now, I have another uh, kind of a, a side door into this as well, but why would elders need to be charged with this and, and encouraged even in this way, just simple and straightforward? I think there are at least a couple of answers that come to my mind. One is they're also men of imperfect faith, and some of you have been in that situation where somebody who's really, really sick, maybe even terminally ill, says, 
could, could you come with other elders and pray? And, and you just feel this great weight on your soul, and you're like, I, I'm, I'm no healer. And I, I don't know if my, par- my prayers are going to be powerful enough. So perhaps because of the weakness of their faith, the Lord, through James, just puts it out there in a very simple and straightforward uh, uh, manner. You know, even these elders who come and, and pray over us sometimes struggle. Sometimes struggle with this very passage and say, I see it in the text. I, I just, I don't know what God will do. I think God takes those kinds of questions and knows our struggles and places the responsibility and weight on his own shoulders. It's not actually on the elders. And I know that furthermore because it's not only a practice that's simple and straightforward, it's a practice that he has, in, into which he has delegated his authority. Look at the next couple of, of phrases there. When the elders come to pray, they do two things. One, they anoint with oil. Now, oil is used all through the scriptures as a symbol of the Holy Spirit or of God's blessing. So it's a physical reminder that the Spirit of God is ultimately the one who has to work, who needs to work for this thing to happen. And again, we don't use oil because there's some magic healing power in the oil. No, it is symbolic of the work of the Spirit of God. Even in the ministry of Christ, back in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 13, the testimony is that they, the disciples, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And again, what Jesus has done is to delegate that healing power to the disciples. They scatter. They begin to minister and serve, and they use this oil not because, again, it's infused with supernatural strength or supernatural powers. The oil doesn't have it. It's symbolic of God himself coming to bring blessing. Then notice the second thing. They not only anoint this sick one with oil, they do so in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. Now, we've talked briefly on a couple of other occasions about the name of the Lord is representative of all that He is. Think about that for a moment. And and the names and titles that appear in Scripture are always revealing truth to us about God. His great name, Yahweh, the the I Am, the self-existent one. He needs nothing else. He's never never drawn life from another uh, source or entity. He's always been or some of the titles that are connected to it, or words of explanation, Jehovah or Yahweh Jireh. That is the God who provides. And, and God reveals himself to the Old Testament saints in particular ways through these names and titles. So when we invoke his name on a person who is sick, we're actually admitting we have no power to heal. We have no ability to do for this person what needs to be done, but we actually bring the, the, the authority of your name through this prayer onto this person in the sincere and simple hope and expectation that, God, you will act. You would never want Danny Brooks to pray over you in, in my name, and I would not dream of doing that. And if that day ever happens, you should, you should say, Danny, time for you to go home you know, please get somebody else because these prayers aren't going to go any higher than the ceiling right now. I mean, that seems absurd, doesn't it? For me to invoke my own name. I I wouldn't even pray in the name of this church. I I wouldn't even pray in the name of one of the prophets or great saints that have been mentioned in this passage, whether it be Elijah who's coming up. And the point of, of, of using Elijah is that he was a man of like nature as we are. Well, how did Elijah pray? In the name of the Lord. 
So there's only one name under which or through which any of us would ever be healed, and it is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a simple, straightforward practice, a practice infused with God's authority delegated from on high. Oil symbolic, invoking a name that is powerful. And then that brings us to the the third part here that I want us to look at this morning, and that is the power of these prayers. James says very simply, verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. I think a great question for us to always be asking ourselves is, what am I putting my faith in at this moment? Whether it be for healing, as, as in this context, or whether it be for some other need, where's your faith today? Is your faith in your own ability to protect, to care, to provide for yourself? Is your faith in another group? Maybe you've got a really strong family. You say, you know, our, our family always makes it. We just, we just find a way through. We've got a long track record, a long history. You know, sooner or later, even good families break down, don't they? Is your bank account big enough? There's no bank account in the world that is actually big enough to protect you and defend you from all the evil that could come your way. There's actually only one place where faith can rest and find solid ground. And that is the God of the Bible. And specifically in God the Son, Jesus Christ. And these prayers that are offered by His authority and in His name become the means whereby God says, I'll save the one who is sick. And he uses the word save that that can mean to deliver, it can mean to make whole, and I think because the context is talking about physical healing, he's actually talking about that kind of saving, that wholeness. Now here's a question. Is Is this a categorical promise from God that any sickness that you ever experience, if you follow these steps, will be healed? And I gotta tell you, I've wrestled and continue to wrestle with this right up until this moment. There's part of me right now that's a little nervous. And I say that in part because of my experience in the past. Some unbelievable, and I'm going to share a couple of things with you that I hope will strengthen your faith. Other things that I can't explain yet, and it may be that I, I have to see God personally when I arrive in heaven and say, Lord, could you explain to me why that particular situation went the way it did? One of the things I am sure of is that you can't take one verse out of a a little paragraph like this in one New Testament letter and say, well, that says everything there is to say about this particular topic, all right? It's always wise to consider the whole of Scripture. And one of the things that you see if you go back through the New Testament and look in particular even at the life and ministry of Jesus is this. Not everyone who was sick in Jesus' day and in his region was healed. After Jesus ascended on high, not every apostle or disciple who followed him experienced perfect health. There are examples from the New Testament Gospels all the way through the letters uh, of, of people who loved him dearly, who even prayed for relief, prayed for healing, and God in his wisdom chose not to answer it. I think that's instructive for us. 
it reminds us again that there are purposes that God has that we cannot fully understand, and we dare not take a scripture like this and just slap it on everything and say, well, that's the verse, and if it didn't work, then the problem is with your faith, or maybe the elders didn't pray in the right way, and and we kind of look for a problem that would explain why the answer didn't come. So three quick thoughts for you here, just surveying some of the New Testament teaching. First of all, let's be clear, healing is a direct action of God's compassion for the weak and sick. The, the term that uh, appears all through the New Testament uh, that refers to God's compassion and, and Christ's compassion for sick people it speaks of his feeling it deeply, personally. I love the fact that we serve a God who feels things deeply. That'll be more meaningful for some of you than others, but God doesn't exist in some realm where he can't be touched with the feelings of his created beings. He enters into it. Let me give you some examples. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 20, verse 34, Jesus encounters two blind men, and the testimony that Matthew records is that Jesus, in pity or with deep compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Mark 1, verse 41, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched a leper in this case, and said to him, be clean. Or Luke 7, verses 11 through 15, and I'll just take one of those verses. When the Lord saw a particular woman, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Or even in the the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he is speaking of Timothy and says, Timothy was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him or compassion, and not only on him, but on me also. And isn't that interesting? Paul wasn't physically suffering to the point of death, but he watched Timothy, someone that he loved so dearly, and it was overwhelming to his soul. And, and, And after that healing, Paul recognized that God had mercy on Timothy and on him as dear friend. He had compassion on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. You see, those are some of the emotions and experiences that get wrapped up in critical illness. God's compassion for our weakness becomes powerful motivation to pray. That's part of what James is drawing on. Are you sick? You should pray. You're praying to a God who's full of compassion and mercy, who sees your suffering and understands it and knows it and does not turn away from it or minimize it, but has demonstrated even in the days of his incarnation that he delights to heal those who call on him for mercy. Here's a second truth that you see as you survey the New Testament in particular. Healing is sometimes a gift the Spirit activates. We know that from books like 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, where Paul is running through a series of of gifts that come directly from the Spirit, and he says uh, in this this list, to another uh, faith is given by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. And then he he states in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, that the purpose of spiritual gifts is that they would manifest God to us, the Spirit of God, for the common good. I think that's important for us to remember. Toward the end of the chapter, he poses this question, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, do all possess gifts of healing? And the answer that's clearly implied from the way that flows is no. No. But has God given individuals gifts of healing 
in the course of, of church history. Absolutely. It's interesting to me, too, though, that there are occasions, and I, and I think of the Apostle Paul, and if you look at his life and ministry and some of the things that he records, uh, he and the other apostles would be examples of men who were given the gifts of healing, and, and yet it doesn't seem to be something they could just exercise any old time. I say that in part because you have a man like Paul who clearly believes what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, and yet when Timothy uh, had another stomach issue, he's like, hey, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. And he didn't say, if you can find your way to me, I will heal you. I will exercise my gift of healing. So I want to be careful in this because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. I think there's a lot of fear and confusion that has to do with the spiritual gifts. But I, I want us to acknowledge that the Scriptures show us that, th that sometimes the Spirit activates a gift of healing. And I can't tell you everything there is uh, to uh, know about that. But it's a reminder to us that we don't have the power to just generate it ourselves. It comes from God. So he's full of compassion and mercy. That's crystal clear. He sometimes gives a gift that the Spirit activates that results in the healing of, of people in the, in the body of Christ. And number three, uh, healings are not universal. As I alluded to just a moment ago, Christ did not heal all the sick people of his day. Mark 1, 36 to 38 is one of those examples. There's another powerful one, and that's John 11. That's the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was one of the very close and dear friends of Jesus, and Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus became critically ill. Mary and Martha sent word to him, which in my mind is no different from the prayers we send to Jesus in our day and age, right? And you know what? If you read John 11, Jesus delays going to Lazarus and actually waits until they get word that Lazarus is dead. And when he finally arrives, the sisters meet him. Both of them say separately, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It, it's almost like, Lord, what, what happened? Well, Jesus actually has a greater purpose because it's going to bring him greater honor and glory to resurrect Lazarus from the dead than it would have for him to come and heal him before he died. I think that's instructive for us because we are confined to what we see and know right now. And there are times where we have to trust the wisdom of God that even his allowing a person to undergo death will ultimately bring him greater glory than if he had chosen to heal that person in life as we requested. There are examples from the life of Paul. Let me give you a couple more specifics. I touched on this earlier, but in Acts 28.8, the record of God's word tells us that Paul healed a man named Publius by the laying on of hands. But then you read in 2 Timothy 4.20, he left Trophimus sick in the town of Miletus. Why would he heal one by laying hands on him and not heal another? I don't know. Paul himself prayed for healing, the thorn in the flesh, his personal weakness that he wrote of in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7, 8, and 9. But God said, no, healing is not my best for you. My grace is sufficient for you in that physical affliction. Those are examples that kind of make us say, whoa, so maybe my healing isn't the greatest good. 
maybe the healing of my loved one isn't the greatest good. So in this prayer, the Lord shows us there is power to make whole, but I think we need to be careful that as we practice James 5, we not set ourselves up for a kind of confusion or disappointment if the Lord should choose not to heal an individual. That said... I also don't want to rip the guts out of this passage so we kind of pray, pray with this Christian fatalism, right? You know what I mean by that? It, it sounds spiritual and pious. Well, Lord, we just trust you to do whatever your will is. That's not the kind of prayer that James is saying we ought to pray. And that's different from, Lord, we need a healing. Now, let's look at the phrase here, though. The Lord will raise him up. The Lord, again, you see, it's the Lord. It's not the elders. It, it's not the community healer. It's the Lord, the Lord whose name and authority has been invoked over the sick person. It's the same Lord who acts to raise up this person. Now, praise God, because there are also countless passages uh, in the Gospels in particular that show us what this power in action looks like. Um, I, I did a little quick survey, not, not on my own, but just kind of researched it. It looks to me like there are 41 passages in the Gospels that deal with Christ's ministry of healing. One of those that is very special to me, um, and I, I want to ask you to turn there for just a moment, is found in Mark 5. And I say it's special because I think every one of us relate to this woman. Mark 5. But the story isn't about the woman, is it? Never is, not in the Gospels. It's always about Jesus. But this is a real woman who's struggling with something, and there's medical history here that we can't fully uh, develop and explain here. This needs to be a whole message in and of itself. But uh, in verse 25, we read, There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and had suffered much under many physicians. There's the theme of suffering. We've been looking at it in James. If any of you suffers... He should pray. That's what James was saying. So here is a woman suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. I think that's important for us. And was no better, but rather grew worse. Out of resources, out of answers, out of options. This, this is the definition of desperation. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, and I love the fact that that God through Mark gives us insight into what was going on in her mind. She said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. I don't even have to touch him. I don't have to touch the heel of his foot or the pinky on his hand, just his garments, because they're attached to him, and he's the great healer. So she's heard these reports. Now verse 29, and immediately flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease and Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately turned about in the crowd and said who touched my garments now again does he know everything yeah he's God and I think he's asking that question to give her an opportunity to speak to draw her out of this condition of desperation and to let her know there's so much more in him than just the power to heal her disease what really lies at the heart of Jesus is a desire and longing to have relationship with broken people like us. So he's not content to let her just walk away healed. He actually wants to engage her face to face. So he turns, 
says to the crowd, who touched me? His disciples are mystified. It must have been some kind of crowd because they say, you see the crowd pressing around us and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, and he's speaking in terms that, if we understand these correctly, are really tender. He says, your faith has made you well. How did her faith make her well? Because her faith connected her to the God who's a healer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, can I just insert this very quickly? That concept of peace is more than just, you know, be at rest in your heart. It's like, go in the knowledge that your life is whole. For 12 years, it hasn't been whole. And, and furthermore, in that context, in Jewish context, do you know what that disease meant for her? It meant she's excluded from the household of faith. It meant she can't come into a, it would have been Saturday worship, Sabbath worship for them, but it meant she couldn't assemble with God's people and ever seeing one psalm with them or ever listen to one, uh, one sermon as they read from the scriptures on a Sabbath day. It meant that she could not have interaction with the people she loved most because this kind of disease actually had spiritual defiling principles with it. And so when he says, go in peace, you're well, you're whole, I mean, there's a whole relational dynamic that's being restored to her. It's not just the resolution of this physical illness. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. I love that. And you know what? That's the God we're praying to. And I never want to forget these things because sometimes God seems like he's up there and out there, can't see him with these eyes, can't hear him with these ears. So you have to look through the revelation that he's given to us saying, you want to know how I respond to people who are desperate? Here it is in flesh and blood. I sent my only begotten son into the world to show you how much compassion and pity and power there is in me for broken people like you. Do you see why I say I don't want to pray? I don't want to pray kind of sanitized Christian fatalistic prayers. Well, Lord, I mean, what if she had approached the Lord that day, and and or just even kind of from her heart, been like, well, whatever Jesus wants to do. No, but there she is, reaching for Him. If I can just touch the hem of His garment. Have you ever prayed like that, Lord? I I know that You're hearing me for Jesus' sake. I'm coming to You in the name of Jesus, but I, I'm so desperate. If I could just even touch the bottom of Your throne of grace, that'd be enough. But he's that compassionate, and he's that powerful. Now, let me tell you, through my years of pastoral ministry, I've, I've had the privilege of praying on a number of occasions uh, with elders. The last church I came from practiced this. We've already had the privilege as elders here of praying for Becky Belial. She's shared that with, with some of you, I'm sure, and I know that's not, that's not a secret we keep to ourselves. We're still waiting for her to be healed, but she's making good progress and I'm just going to tell you, I have mixed experience. I have some uh, experiences I can look back on and say, man, it was the, pit, the, the perfect picture of James 5. Let me give you one of those stories that was just thrilling. And I love telling it. 20, I think we're now 21, two years later, something like this. Um, there was, a, a, at that time, another young couple at our church in South Carolina Tony and Carol are their names. They actually were, were same age as Kristen and me, good friends. They had just had their first child. And when Hunter was just a baby, he began to develop these severe seizures. It's terrifying. Some of you have little ones, and you can imagine how you would feel to just see your little one experience 
seizures that test after test gave them no answers, procedure after procedure, medication after medication, and they reached a point where the doctors basically said, "We, we can't really tell you why, and we're not sure we can actually stop these things. And so Tony and Carol made a call to church and said, are there some of the elders who could just pray over Hunter? And of course the answer was yes. And this is, this is a sweet thing too because one of the elders who was serving our church at that time, his name was Marty. He was actually the husband of my now stepmother, okay? There's a little story there. I'll have to fill in some blanks there. But um, Marty prior to that, had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. His doctor said to him, you need to get your house in order. Your days aren't long. And he turned around and he asked for the elders to pray over him and ask God to extend his life long enough that he could see all of his grandbabies and hold them on his knee. And you know, God gave Marty, I think it was 15, maybe 16 extra years. Healed him. Uh, Cancer did ultimately return, but you know, 15 years of life and he actually held his last grandbaby on his lap Uh, I think it was several months before he went to be with the Lord. Marty died, actually, three months before my mother died. Six years after that, my dad and Marty's wife, Edie, got together. And some of you met them when they were out here in in May. That's kind of another really remarkable story. But Marty was in that prayer meeting, um, and he had been anointed with oil, experienced healing. And it's always a powerful thing. When people have experienced something <clears throat> are on the other side of it praying. I wish we had recorded that prayer. Um, I wish I could even remember specifics from it. I just don't have that kind of mind. But I remember the atmosphere. And, and it was one of just awe, holy awe. Like the Lord's in the room with us. But there wasn't, and, and I want you to know too, there's no secret formula. It's not even like Marty used special or super spiritual words. He was a man who had known God's healing and prayed for Hunter's healing. And there was Carol, seated next to her husband, Tony, holding Hunter in her arms. And we laid hands on that little guy, laid hands on mom and dad while we were praying, and just asked the Lord to heal. It wasn't much longer, and the seizures were gone. Never returned. He didn't have another dose of medication. And the real joy in my heart came when he returned. To, their family moved away, and... Um, he returned to Greenville, where I was serving in a church, uh, entered college uh, there in Greenville, walked into the church. You know, now he's a freshman and whatever, 18 years old. And um, we stood in the lobby, and I looked at him, and he came up, and he said, you know, I'm Hunter. Uh, you guys prayed for me. And it was one of those wow moments. We're like, this is awesome. Hunter, you've had any seizures? Nope, no more. God healed me. So on the one hand, that's, that's awesome, great joy. And I could tell you stories of some of the other people that God healed along with Marty and Hunter, uh, several of the ladies in our church, one other gentleman I can think of at this point. I mean, God did astonishing things. But I can also tell you of some dear saints who are now with the Lord, who he did the same thing, prayed the same kinds of prayers, and God chose not to. And that's where I go to John 11 and say, okay, Lord, I'm gonna trust you that it would have been a miraculous healing but perhaps there's something that you intend to do even through that ultimate resurrection of that person to glorify your name that's greater than what we were asking you to do there. There's one young man who was very close to our family who was diagnosed with a pretty rare form of cancer. We actually had two different prayer meetings over him, and if you had asked me, both of those prayer meetings were incredible times. The presence of the Lord 
just, I mean, was in the room, and we, we all just felt like we were being guided in our prayers and just carried along. And um, God didn't heal him. I performed his funeral. He's the one and only child who I, I had the privilege of dedicating him to the Lord when he was a baby, and I performed his funeral. And to this day, it really tears me up because I say, Lord, we did that. Why did Todd die? But those are the moments you step back and say, you are God. And I will not doubt his compassion and mercy. I will not doubt his power. I rest in his wisdom for the things I cannot see. We're praying to the same Lord who was physically present and powerful in his healing activity for the woman that we just read of in Mark 5, uh, for my friend Hunter and his family. And we're going to keep praying. We don't pray because we believe there are magic powers or special incantations that, that we can perform. But this God is real. And he loves to do good to those who call on him. We do it in community. Because God hasn't called you into relationship with him just so that you can be the Lone Ranger. So we live this life together. And when we're sick, we pray to him. And sometimes we're so sick, we actually call others and say, time to bring the olive oil, which, by the way, that's the kind of oil we use. You say, do you order it from Israel? Nope. Um, I'll go to Smith's, go to Harmon's, whatever's convenient, extra virgin, just want to be fresh. Nothing worse than anointing someone with rancid oil. That doesn't minister grace to them. But the oil's just a symbol. So we will do this. And some of you today may say, I didn't know our church does that. I've got a sickness I haven't told anybody about. Well, maybe we need to call for the elders and do this. But in it all, we, we trust God. We trust God. He's conquered our sin and he's conquered death. So, praise God for a passage that uh, shows us a way and gives us great hope. As we, as we close our time together this morning, I, I want you to just think of uh, two questions. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now, and we're going to enter just a little moment of prayer. But the first question is this, broadly speaking, you touched on this earlier, but where is your faith being placed today? Are you trusting in yourself? Even in the context of healing, you could be trusting a doctor or medical procedures or certain kinds of medication. It's a good time to just check and say, is my faith in Jesus Christ, who is the healer? Where is your faith concerning your sin? Are you trusting God for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you trusting Him for the gift of eternal life? Or are you trying to make your own way to God? And then a second question, is there a physical sickness that needs the prayers of this church or even specifically of the elders? And that may even be something you have to pray about a little. Seek the, the guidance of the Lord because your faith is important to that. You need to be 
led of the Lord to make that request. So I, I, the last thing I want to do is to manipulate somebody into saying, well, I'm sick, I guess. No, I, I want you to give it thought and prayer. So just two simple questions. Just pray over those for a moment. Where is your faith? And do you need prayer? Father, how thankful we are for your word, for the simplicity of it, straightforward. We thank you that there are no gimmicks in the Christian life. There's simple and ordinary means that you use to accomplish your eternal and awesome purposes. We praise you for the healings that are on record. Some here in this assembly could tell their own stories of how you've miraculously healed those that had no hope. We praise you for the exercise of your compassion, of your mercy, of your power. It puts us in awe of you. It reminds us again, Lord God, to continue in prayer for beloved ones like Becky Belial. Oh, how we ask that as she continues to lean hard on you and trust you each day for life, for strength, for direction, for wisdom, that you would sustain her. We long to see her restored to the fellowship Uh, of these Sunday gatherings. She desires it, and we miss her. We want her to be here. Would you raise her up, just as your word says, and as we continue to pray over her in Jesus' name, we look for you, full of compassion, full of power, to work in a mighty way. We think of Pastor Lloyd. Know that he is grateful for our prayers, but still faces uh, a number of important steps Even this week, oh God, how we ask that you would strengthen him and sustain him, that you would heal him. We are eager to see him restored to the the routines of life and ministry, and in particular, some of the opportunities that are before him that he, he cannot get to in this physical state at this moment. Oh Lord God, would you hear the prayers of his heart, of his dear wife and family and of our church, and, and just heal him completely. Put your strength in him. Thank you that you are the God who is full of compassion and power, full of pity for broken people like us. So do your good work in us and continue to grow us as a body of believers that we may be the people you desire us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.